give this over to the Lord. Heavenly Father, as always, you teach, we listen, your spirit lead and guide us. You wrote this. We would just want to learn it, obey it, apply it to our lives, and go out and be a difference maker in all we do and say to represent you to a dying world, Lord. It's not about us, but you. And just bless the kids in the back that they may learn and grow in you in your name. Amen. Matthew 19. Continue our verse-by-verse study here through the book of Matthew. As we get up to Matthew chapter 19, the teaching this morning, Jesus is teaching on marriage. Now, I always used to struggle with teaching on marriage because it's difficult sometimes. You see people that are married. You see people in different states of that. And it's kind of like, Lord, how does this apply? And I came to this conclusion. Correct me if I'm wrong. I'm willing to bet that everybody here this morning, you at least know one person who is married. So, so since you know people who are married, you know that you may be in a role where you need to encourage those that are married. It amazes me how often someone will come up to me, and they may have never been married before in their life, but they ended up getting into a conversation with a coworker about the coworker's marriage. So therefore, even though you may not be married, you may not be thinking about getting married, you may not want to get married. And just real quick side point, if you come up to me and say, James, I'm never getting married, I just want to let you know, when you do get married, and I do the ceremony, I will publicly remind everybody that you said you'd never get married. And if you don't think I do that, I've done that twice. I'm just letting you know that. You can encourage those that are married. You may be married now. You may be single. You may be widowed. You may be divorced. You may be looking. You may not be looking. Whatever state you're in, you're going to run into people who are married. And it's nice to be able to know how to encourage them. Plus, when you really look at what marriage is, marriage is this wonderful picture of our relationship with Jesus Christ. So it's important to know this and to understand this. So with that being said, let's jump right into this. Matthew 19, verse 1. Now it came to pass when Jesus had finished these sayings that he departed from Galilee and came to the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. If you would look at a map, Jesus' ministry has been pretty far to the north. He's now heading back towards Jerusalem. We're getting into the final time here of Christ's life on earth before his death on the cross. So he's now heading back towards Jerusalem. Verse 2. Great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. Great ministry going on. Great ministry. Now real quick. Look at verse 3. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? I've noticed this a lot in life. In the midst of good ministry, a good season of life, you get, verse 3, problems and issues. 2 Timothy 4.2, be prepared in season and out of season. If you're in a good season of life right now and you're in a good ministry of life, Amen. Rejoice. But be prepared, because guess what? There's going to be a tough season that comes up. That's just the world we live in. If you're in a tough season of life right now, rejoice, because a good season will come. Be prepared in season and out of season. You have this great ministry going. Verse 2, people are being healed. Then all of a sudden, somebody comes and wants to cause difficulties with the question. This is what I call a setup question. This is the tough spot for Jesus to be in. And I always love to hear Christ's response to these tough questions. He has the best answers. Now, why is this a setup question? Because there was two schools of thought with the rabbis at this time that was teaching the Jews. One school of thought was a very conservative school of thought. They looked at the Old Testament law. That's how we're going to approach it. And this is what we're going to do when it comes to the area of divorce. Then there was a very liberal school of thought. And their liberal school of thought was, you know what? You can divorce for any reason. And the reason they back this up, there's a verse in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 24, that says you're allowed to divorce for uncleanliness. That's what it says, uncleanliness. So the liberal approach came and said this, what's uncleanliness? These are all actual examples. I have found a woman that's more attractive than my wife, so therefore my wife now is unclean. So I'm going to divorce her and marry her. 
My wife does not make food the way I want, so therefore the food is now unclean, and so now I'm going to go find a woman that cooks better. And this is the liberal idea that was going through the time. And so these rabbis said, you can divorce for any reason, just as long as you can prove your wife did not meet your expectations or what have you, and so she is therefore unclean, you can go get a new wife. Well, the conservative approach said, no, that is not what unclean means. And they tried to explain what the unclean meant. And so it became this debate. So they came to Jesus with this debate, and it's a complete setup question. It's testing him. Why? Because if Jesus comes and says, nope, this is what the law says, well, then everybody who has that liberal mindset, well, we don't want to follow Jesus anymore, division. And if he goes with the other mindset, the conservative group's going to say, oh, we don't want to follow Jesus anymore. They're just trying to cause division. How does Jesus always handle these questions? He always goes back to the scriptures. Verse 4. He answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And he said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. He always goes back to the basics of the scriptures. If you're ever in a situation where somebody asks you a question and you don't know what to say, it is such a complicated issue. Just stop at this moment and keep it simple. Lord, what does the Bible say about this? Let's just go back to the basics of the Bible. And when you get back to the basics of the Bible, you'll have your answer. It's not what you think. It's not what your mom thinks. It's not what your coworkers think. It's what does the Bible say about this? Therefore, that's the final authority. And what else does Jesus do in verse 4? He goes back to the beginning. God's original plan. Not what society has turned it into. But God's original plan. You can never go wrong in life when you go back to what the Bible says. And you go back to God's original beginning plan. It will always set you in the right order. Because what happens a lot, people come in. They're struggling in marriage. And so, therefore, they are thinking about divorce, what have you. And they're like, well, I was, I was talking to my coworkers. And they think I should do this. Well, you know, my mom has said from the beginning that she never liked him. No. It doesn't matter what they think. It matters what the Bible says. And it matters what God's original plan was from the beginning. That is what matters. And the Lord makes it straightforward here on what his plan is. If you're a note taker, you can write it down. There's six points real quick that he just says. And explains to us what marriage is. So this is God's plan for marriage. First off, verse 4. From the beginning made them male and female. From the beginning. Marriage existed in the idea of the Garden of Eden. Marriage is a perfect, ordained, created idea that God had. If you want a small glimpse of what the Garden of Eden looked like, it's supposed to be a picture of marriage. Marriage is the only thing that we have left over from the Garden of Eden. Don't ever forget that. I will make that point so many times this morning. Because it shows God's perfect plan. God ordained. God created this institution. And what a beautiful thing it is. I am such a fan of marriage. I love marriage. I love it when you see two believers come together in the Lord. What a beautiful picture that is. And so, therefore, when somebody ever comes up to me and they want to get married, you know, once we go through this, you know, making sure you've got two individuals that are saved and they understand they want to have a biblical marriage, I would say, okay, listen, so you, you both saved. Yep, you both want to have a biblical marriage. Yep, you feel the Lord is bringing you together. Yep, then what's holding you back? What's holding you back? Go. Go do it. And, you know, Dawn and I got married very young. We were 19 when we got married. And, and I don't regret that anyway, so I love it. 
We've been married over 20 years, and it's just wonderful that we've had this time and season together, and I'm such a fan of marriage. And so that's why when I see a marriage is that hurting, it always bothers me because I always think they don't realize how good it could be. They don't realize the blessing of what it could be because this is God's original plan. And the problem is a lot of times when you see a marriage that's not clicking or working, they're not really basing marriage off God's plan. They're basing it off what their expectations or their wants or what society says marriage is supposed to be. Let's see what God says it is. So, first thing we see is from the beginning, came out of the Garden of Eden. What else do we see in marriage in verse 4? We see marriage is man and woman, male and female. That was God's plan. That's God's creation. That's God ordained. Marriage is man and woman coming together in the Lord. What else do we see? Verse 5, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Marriage involves the idea of leaving. What are you leaving? You're leaving the single life. You're leaving wants, desires, projects, plans, sometimes dreams. Boy, James, when you present it like that... No. When you get married, all of a sudden you are now united together and as one. And so that single lifestyle is out the window. It's gone. You now have a home life. You now have a married unit. You have a spouse. Eventually you'll probably have kids. You're not single. Don't act like you're single. One of the biggest problems I see, I should say the biggest problem I see in marriage and counseling is men not wanting to be spiritual leaders. The second biggest problem I see are people that are married but they still want to act like they're single. Can't do that. There's a leaving of that. There's a leaving of wants, desires, projects, plans. There is. Because when you get married, obviously Jesus is still number one, but number two is your spouse. And you have to let go sometimes of projects, plans, ideas, desires. It is. I remember talking to people, and they'll come up and say something like this. Well, I always wanted to fill in the blank. Oh, why don't you do it? Well, I can't now. i got kids. Well, wait a second. That was partially your doing right there, you know? <laughs> I love Sunday afternoons, and I love watching football. Absolutely love it. And if you've ever been in my house before, we have our living room set up with the TV. Our couch is back here, and so we can sit on the couch and enjoy watching football. Now, certain times of the year, we have 10 people living in our house. And our living room is kind of the thorough way to get from point A to point B. So there's constantly people walking back and forth in front of the television, constantly. And there's always people talking. So I turn up the TV really loud. And then when everybody quits talking, geez, dude, you got the TV up loud. Well, if you guys would learn to be quiet, you know, it's... I actually have thought about taking duct tape and putting duct tape in an area in front of the TV. This is a no-stand zone. Because they walk by and they stand right in front of the television. So I was grouching and complaining about this one time to Dawn. Just, you know, this quiet, I can't... And she says, do you want quiet? And I said, yeah. She says, you'll get quiet in 18 years. Deal with it. <laughs> That's the truth. In 18 years, it will be quiet in my house. It will be very quiet. And at that time, I'll miss the loudness. The season of life I am in right now is a season of children. It's a season of activity. It's a season of noise. It's not a season of football. The idea right now of my season, I have to accept that. And what I see a lot of times in marriage is I see, and a lot of times it's the men. The men are in a season of life, and they dream about that single life. They dream about the wants, the desires, the projects, the plans. That's not the season you're in. The season you're in right now is your spouse, and if you have children, your children. That's what you need to focus on. I've heard pastors say one time, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. 
but what you don't realize is the water bill is higher. And there's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that. So it involves a leaving, a leaving of that single life, once desires, projects, plans, and it now becomes a focus on what? This idea of leave and be joined, a union, a joining, an openness to each other. Any wedding I do, I always say something to this fact, and I'll just pick two names, a Bill and a Susan. I'll say, from this point forward, it's no longer a Bill, it's no longer a Susan. It's Bill and Susan. And whatever they say and whatever they do, there is a joining that happens. And that joining becomes, as it says in verse 5, a oneness. A oneness. Point five, there's a oneness in marriage. What do we have? First point, marriage came out of the Garden of Eden. It's an ordained, perfect plan of God. Marriage, man and woman, point two. Marriage number three involves a leaving. Marriage, point four, and involves a joining. That's then now point five. Marriage involves a oneness. This is a big issue in marriage. They live together. They share meals together. They share events together. But they're not one. There's a oneness there. See, what happens a lot of times in marriage, especially when you throw some kids involved, there's a lot of talking that goes on. But it's just factual talking. i got to be at work tomorrow at this time. Oh, okay. Don't forget I'm going to be getting home late. Okay. Don't forget the kid's got a doctor's appointment. Okay. It's a lot of just factual planning and talking. So you go up to them and say, how's your communication? Oh, it's good. Good, because our communication involves doctor's appointments, dog appointments, sporting events, work schedules. There's a deeper oneness that comes out, and I'm talking a spiritual oneness. The Bible talks about oneness. There's an emotional oneness, a spiritual oneness, and a physical oneness. The spiritual oneness of coming together in the Lord together. I encourage you. Now, this is where it's difficult. If your marriage does not do these things, it seems awkward. It really does. I encourage you and your spouse to get a vision for what you want your marriage to be from the Lord. Your marriage is not just surviving. It's not just getting the kids to 18. It's not just getting through this. The Lord brought you two together. He brought you together for a purpose. What is that purpose? What is the ministry that the Lord is asking you together? That's a difficult question. Because in some of your marriages right now, the idea of a oneness in spiritual ministry, that is so far from what you're thinking. I just want to say that's the goal. Set the goal. Now work towards that goal. How do you work towards oneness? Well, men, let's pick on you for a little bit here. Plant some spiritual seeds in your marriage. That doesn't mean you go home and have to do a study on the Greek of the book of Revelation. No. Sometimes it's something very simple. We have a box of scripture cards at home. I think we actually got it from the garage sale giveaway, to be honest. So if you donated it, thank you. We have a box of scripture cards at home. And before the meal happens, one of the kids goes over and grabs a scripture card. And the kids take turns reading the scripture cards. And we take a few minutes at that time, talk about what that scripture is. We believe firmly what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 6, that we're supposed to talk of the Lord when you get up, when you lie down, when you walk away at the table, etc. We always want to be talking about the Lord. We try to, as much as possible, have a time of devotions. And now, I've reached a point now where I normally don't read the devotion. I pick one of the boys to read the devotion. I want to teach them how to be leaders. The only way to learn how to be a leader is to get the devotion out and read it. Lead. Tell us what you think it means and represents. And then ask questions. I ask questions. I normally, if I would read it, I would read it, and I would say, what do you guys think this means? And then we'd start the conversation going. And I've noticed now with the boys, they get done reading, the boys will pick another brother and say, what do you think it means? How are they supposed to know how to lead a family unless they know how to start doing it at this age? 
And so therefore, Dawn and I try to have a time of prayer together. And there's always different levels of which you can go. There's always more, but don't turn it into a legalistic. Don't turn it into a have to. Turn it into, I want the family to have a spiritual focus. I want my kids to have a spiritual focus. And I know for Dawn and I, when we are serving together as one spiritually, there's a closeness there. And I also know that Satan will do everything he can to prevent that from happening. I know he will. He will battle that. I encourage you to look for that oneness, the spiritual oneness. I encourage you also to look for that emotional oneness. There's a great passage in the book of Malachi where it calls the wife your friend. Your friend. Build that emotional relationship as well, too. The Lord will bless that. He wants that oneness in him. And what else do we have here? And I mentioned it earlier, verse 6. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let that man separate. God brought you two together. The Lord brought you two together. That's the goal. You didn't bring each other together. The Lord did. You've heard me say this before, and you've heard this story. Forgive me for the repetition. I ask every couple when they get married, when they're getting ready to be married out here, why do you feel the Lord has brought you together? And generally, it's one of those things of why do you want to get married? Oh, because she's cute. He makes me laugh. I've never had a guy treat me this way. I've never had a woman treat me this way. And so that's why we want to get married. So I normally say this. So you want to get married because she's cute. Oh, she's beautiful. What are you going to do when you wake up and she's ugly? Oh, she'll never be ugly. Oh, one day she will. One day she will. I've never had a guy treat me this nice. What happens when he's a jerk? He's still going to love him? Well, no, he'll never do that. Oh, yeah, he will. He will. And so I always tell them it's a set-up question. I always do. And then they eventually reach a point, okay, fine, what's the answer? The answer is you're getting married because the Lord brought you together. The Lord brought you together. Yes, you find her attractive. Yes, he treats you nice. Amen to that. But you're getting married because the Lord brought you together. Just like Eve was created specifically for Adam. I believe there's an Eve out there for every Adam. I do. But real quick side note. Please note the creations of Adam and Eve. Completely different. Yes, they're both created by the same God. One's from dirt. One's from bone. One's from this time, one's from a different time. What does that show? Men and women are different. You've got to know that. You've got to understand that. That's why it's a struggle and a battle sometimes with the oneness. But if God joined you together, let no man separate. If people come in and they're willing to be open and honest and they're talking about divorce, one of the questions I ask them is this. If you believe the Lord brought you together, and every couple I've ever asked that, they always say, yes, we believe at one time we felt the Lord brought us together. Then why is he telling you at this time to separate? If the Lord brought you together, then why is he telling you not to separate? You may want to. You may want to jump ship. You may want to quit. And we'll get to biblical grounds for divorce. There are biblical grounds. That's coming up. But at this point, if the Lord brought you together, why is he telling you to separate? So what is marriage? Marriage came out of the Garden of Eden. Perfect. God-ordained, created plan. Marriage is a man and woman. Marriage involves a leaving, single life, wants, desires, projects, plans. Marriage involves a joining, an openness to each other. Marriage involves a oneness, spiritually, emotionally, physically. Marriage, then, is the Lord's combining, bringing two people together. Two people together. Now, we're going to get to this point in a little bit. But before your husband and wife, your brother and sister in Christ and the Lord. And you have to remember that. Just remember that. The Lord brought you together to be husband and wife. But before your husband and wife, your brother and sister in Christ and the Lord. And that's the point we're going to end with. So therefore, if marriage is this amazing thing, why do we have verse 7? Then they said to him, why then did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and to put her away? 
Okay, this is God's plan. If this is so great, this is so wonderful, why is divorce allowed? Verse 8, he said to Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her is divorced commits adultery. Now, there's a lot of stuff in those verses there we need to talk about here real quick. First off, why is divorce allowed then if this is not God's plan? Let's talk about divorce for a second. First off, number one, please remember these points. This is so important. The Bible makes it clear that God hates divorce, but God does not hate divorced people. Please make sure you know that. God hates divorce, but he doesn't hate divorced people. If anybody here this morning has ever been through a divorce, you hate divorce. You hate what it did. You hate it. I've never talked to anybody that's gone through divorce and said that was the best moment of my life. It's an awful, horrible thing. So we all establish that's an awful thing. There are grounds for it. There are reasons for it. But it is a concept that is hated. No one enjoys it. But God does not hate those people that have gone through that, which makes sure that's perfectly clear. So why is it allowed? Verse 8, because of the hardness of your hearts. God permitted it. Please note, he permitted it. He did not command it. It's a choice that you can make. And once again, there are reasons for it. One reason, verse 9, adultery, sexual morality there. Another reason, 1 Corinthians 7, about the uh, husband or wife leaving. There are grounds for divorce. But what I've noticed when I teach on marriage is this. I can either spend a lot of time trying to encourage and uplift the marriage and say this is how we can fix it. Or I can spend a lot of time saying, hey guys, here's every reason to get out of it. I don't want to spend time talking about how to get out of it. I'll biblically present it. We just read it. Matthew 19, verse 9. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. It's in there. It's permitted. It's allowed. And in certain cases, it happens. But at the same time, we want to do as much as we can to support marriage. So because of the hardness of your hearts, I tell you, I, I've run into people have had their hearts set on divorce. There's nothing you can change about that. Their hearts set on it. And what God is saying, that's what it is, and that's what it is. It's permitted. It's not commanded, but it's permitted. When we look at this, though, and we look at verse 9, that's a pretty straightforward verse. And I say to whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual morality, and marries another, commits adultery. And whoever marries her as her divorce commits adultery. I read that verse, and you know what I think of? Aren't you glad you can be a new creation in Christ Jesus? Aren't you glad that there can be grace and mercy and forgiveness? Aren't we glad for that? I'm just so thankful when I read a verse like that. It's like, wow, Lord, we're new creations in Christ. The old is gone, the new has come. Past choices, decisions can be wiped away. And we can have a grace and a mercy in the Lord. And what a beautiful picture that is there to know that. But really what it comes down to is, what can we do to support this and to support marriage? Can you go with me to Colossians, please? I told you earlier, before your husband and wife, your brother and sister in Christ, I want to build on this a little bit. Because there's times in marriage, you don't like your husband, you don't like your wife. You don't want them to be your husband. You don't want them to be your wife. But you're still brother and sister in Jesus Christ. That's why that foundational relationship of who you are in Jesus is so important. Because there's times your husband is not acting like a godly husband. There's times when your wife is not acting like a godly wife. And that's where you have to stop and say, you know what? You're failing as a spouse. I'm failing as a spouse. But we're still brothers and sisters in Christ. We can work this out. Because our dad (laughs) is telling us to work this out. God the Father. What does it look like? Verse 12, Colossians 3. This is a brothers and sisters in Christ. This is how we're supposed to act. 
Verse 12, Colossians 3. Therefore, as the elect of God, as the chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on tender mercies, kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another, and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, even as Christ forgave you, so you also must do. Hey, just as brothers and sisters in the Lord, I need to treat my wife, my sister in Christ, with tender mercy. Kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing, forgiving. If I have a complaint, forgive. For some reason, when we bring in the role of husband and wife, we kind of ignore all that. No. These verses are even more important in the the idea of a marriage. These verses are important in the body of Christ. These verses are important in any relationship you have with any other person. But in the bounds of marriage, this is so needed. Why? Because after spending possibly decades with an individual... You can love them, but also the little things can start to get to you. And so what happens is we need to be reminded, spouses, do we have tender mercy towards our spouse? Do we have kindness, humility, meekness, long-suffering, bearing with one another? That's one of the most unromantic verses in the Bible. I want to let you know, my love, my wife, that I will bear with you because Jesus told me to. Now, that's not very romantic, but you know what? That's a committed relationship. I've heard it said, and I don't remember who said it first. You know, Dawn and I may not have a perfect marriage, but we have a permanent marriage. There's times in our lives where we don't see eye to eye. There's times in our lives where we fight, we argue. But we always come away with, I'm committed to you. I'm committed to you. And I'm going to bear with this. And I'm going to forgive. And if I have a complaint, I will forgive. And these are things that we need to remember as brothers and sisters in the Lord. To make a marriage work, there has to be tender mercies, kindness, bearing, forgiving, etc. Sums it all up, verse 14. But above all these things, put on love, which is the bond of perfection. Put on love. Where does that love come from? That love comes from the Lord. My love towards Dawn needs to be based on what Christ did for me. And when I look at Dawn through the eyes of Jesus, I can love her with an unconditional love. And just my human flesh, I can't do that. But from a spiritual standpoint, if I look at her the way Jesus looks at her, then I can put on love. And it's the same thing I hope with her towards me. When she looks at me the way Jesus looks at me, she can love me. Because there's a lot of ugliness in us. There's a lot of ugliness. And in human nature, it's hard to love. But through the eyes of the Lord, through an agape, God-given love, we can have that bond of perfection. Now, what do we get? When you finally do verses 12, 13, and 14, verse 15... Let the peace of God rule in your hearts. See, so often people come in and they want peace. They want peace in their life. They want peace in their marriage. Okay, you want peace in your life and your marriage? Okay, let's work backwards. Verse 14, everything has to be done in love. Verse 13, you need to have forgiveness against one another. Verse 12, you need to have kindness, tender mercies, long-suffering. Then you get peace. Peace comes when we do verses 12, 13, and 14. If we're not willing to do verses 12, 13, and 14, you're not going to have a lot of peace. Not only in your marriage, but also in your life. How do we get that? I mean, how is this even possible? Verse 16. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another, and psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Comes back through God's word, everybody mentioned earlier some of the little things we do in our house spiritually. I encourage you, and I encourage the men here, if you're here this morning, men, and you're married, start to try to lead your family. Please don't try to too hard in the sense of, 
I got to be this perfect spiritual giant. No. It may be just something as simple as around the dinner table tonight. Hey, has anybody got anything they want to pray about? Well, we could never pray out loud together. That's fine. We're just going to pray quietly right now. Just, but I'm going to tell you, I'm going to show you the importance of prayer. Maybe you'll start praying aloud. I don't know. You know what? Maybe it's something like I said earlier. You just take a verse and you say, hey, let's read the verse before we go eat supper. Maybe it is grabbing a devotional. If you want a devotional for your marriage or devotional for your family, come talk to me. We have numerous ones I'm more than willing to recommend. Go home and try it. Don't go home and be legalistic. It will not work. I'll tell you that right now. Do not go home and say every night at 6 o'clock we are going to do this. Because at 5.59, the phone will ring. Someone will knock on the door. Your kids will throw up. You'll throw up. The dog will throw up. Everybody's throwing up at 6 o'clock. It'll just happen. And then you're going to be sitting there saying, we have to do devotions. I've reached a point, there's nine of us in our house right now, as much as possible. If I can get six out of nine, I'm doing good. That's the way I look at it here. It's two-thirds. No, I try to get as everybody as I can. I really do. And it's, sometimes it's tough because I'm ready. I'm in the spiritual mood. Let's do devotions. Everybody devotions. I got three outside, three in the basement. I don't even know where two are at. And I, I mean, I can't even find them. There's times, though, if I'm going to be gone all day, I'll go up to Elias. I say, Elias, make sure you do devotions tonight. Teaching them the leadership, teaching that responsibility. I just encourage you to do that. But let the word of Christ dwell in you. It works, people. It works. If you make time as an individual, as a married couple, as a family, to stop and say, I just want to take a little bit of God's word and apply it to our lives. Oh, man, the blessings of that. You'll be amazed at what it will do. You'll be amazed at what a daily devotional will do because those things you're struggling with, it just always happens to pop up that day. That's just what the Lord does. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. At this point, I just have to be honest. I know some marriages that in the past have tried this, and it's very difficult. There is such a rift. There's such an anger and frustration. The spouse doesn't want to join the other spouse. What do you do at that time? I think you say, men... Hey, honey, I'm, I'm going to do devotions. You want to join me? If she says no, go do it. I would every day just ask her again, very lovingly, very nicely. Wives, if you have men that are not wanting to lead spiritually, very nicely go up and ask them, would you, would you be willing to read this? If he says no, read it yourself. Maybe you don't want to read out loud. I know a family out here that their work schedules is really, really strange. Uh, the kids go to school first shift. The mom works second shift. The dad works third shift. There is no time when they're all together. There literally is not a time when they're all together at the same time. They have a devotional, and what they do is they all have a different color pen, and they mark it. Accountability. They can see Dad read it. They can see Mom read it. They can see the kids read it, and they have different colors. They will highlight or underline what they liked. So as you read it, you may not be reading it together, but you stop and you say, Oh, I see that Dad really liked this part. Oh, I see that he really liked this. I know another couple that their schedules are crazy. The husband leaves so early in the morning. The wife doesn't get up until hours after he leaves, but they try as much as possible at 7 o'clock to just to text each other, what is my prayer request for the day? How can you pray for me today? Little tiny things like that. Once again, it's not doing the in-depth study of this. It's just I want to build a spiritual oneness with you, with the Lord, with the family, and these are little tiny things that I can do. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Verse 17, whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything we do is for him. Everything we do is for him. Now that is just how to live the life. 
There were no verses, chapter breaks back to when Paul wrote this letter to the church of Colossia. So what happens is that they were just reading. They would go right into verse 18. Wives, submit to your own husbands because it's just that much of a flow. Hey, this is how you live the Christian life. This is how we're supposed to act towards each other. This is how we're supposed to be. And wives, submit. It just, it just flows. Wives, submit to your own husbands as is fitting in the Lord. God has ordained this unit, and this unit is the men are supposed to lead. This does not make women inferior. It does not make women a lower. No way. One of the points I always bring up in premarital counseling is, of all the bones in the body, and there's, what, 200-plus bones in the body, why did the Lord choose a rib to make woman? And the answer is, if he would have chose the foot, it shows that man's over the foot. If he would have chose the head, it shows that woman's over the man. There's an equality there between men and women. Dawn is my wife. But she's also my sister in Christ. We have both been saved by the blood of Jesus, and we both have the same Holy Spirit inside of us. So therefore, there's an equality in marriage. But the way marriage works is God has said, Hey, I want you to lead, James. I want you to spend that time in prayer and seeking me, so therefore you can help direct the vision of the family and use your helpmate, Dawn, to do that. Jesus set the example. He was willing to listen to the will of God the Father. And it's not that Dawn is necessarily submitting to me. Hopefully she's submitting to me as I'm submitting to the Lord. And as I'm seeking the Lord, then hopefully there's this train effect that's happening. So what happens, wives, if you have a man that's not a spiritual leader? Well, you follow and you submit as is fitting in the Lord. You don't do anything unbiblical. You don't do anything unchristlike. You don't do anything that they would say that would not give glory to God and be of biblical nature. What happens if you want your man to be a better spiritual leader? Just keep nagging him, right? That helps, doesn't it? <laughs> J. Vernon McGee tells this story that a wife came into his office one time. just had a real heart for her husband. Her husband wasn't the spiritual man that he was supposed to be, and she says that every day at breakfast, lunch, and dinner, she would just weep over her husband and just beg him to go to church, just beg him to go deeper in the Lord, and just that she desired him to be the spiritual leader. So she came to J. Vernon McGee and said to him, My husband won't. J. Vernon McGee says, Woman, if you were my wife, I wouldn't either if that's what you were doing to me. If you're just constantly nagging and pushing and forcing, he says, I wouldn't want it either. He says, Step back. Live the life. Represent Christ. Invite him to church. Ask him to lead if he chooses not to. Just keep moving forward in Jesus and just keep being a witness to him. Now, what I've noticed, though, the flip side to this is this. Wives that for years have wanted their husbands to be the spiritual men. The man becomes the spiritual man. He now wants to lead his family. And this is perfect for a couple months. And then guess what happens? Well, he's not leading the way the wife wanted him to. So now it becomes another battle. Wives, as men, we're going to mess it up. Let us fail sometimes. Let us fail. We'll learn. The Holy Spirit will speak to us. Be patient with us as we're learning this process as well, too. And husbands, I know you think you're perfect. I know you do. You're not the most amazing man that's ever walked the earth. You're not. Your leadership that you think is flawless may not be as flawless as you think. Remember the wisdom that also comes from your wife. Verse 19, husbands, love your wives and do not be bitter towards them. Why does it put do not be bitter towards them? Because husbands can become very bitter towards their wives. Bitter towards this lack of respect. Bitter towards this lack of supposed listening. Bitter towards the sacrifices I have made in life. Bitter towards this, bitter towards that. I find it fascinating that this verse is told specifically to men, not to women. 
Because as men, and I'm just going to be completely honest, I'm allowed to say this as a man, men are more selfish than women. They just are. And as men, if we don't get our, what we feel our needs met, our wants met, we become very, very selfish. And when we don't feel like we're getting our attention, we can become very, very bitter. I've heard wives many times say they may have three children and their husband. They may say, I feel like I have four kids. The truth is, sometimes we act like a child, men. We really do. And so this is where the Lord is saying, hey, men, man up a little bit here. Man up. Don't be bitter towards them. Love them like Jesus does. Verse 20, children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. I know some men that so bad want their children to be obedient... They become harsh, they become rough, they could become tough. And so they demand this obedience, they demand this respect, they demand this perfection. No. Lest they become discouraged. Your kids are going to be sinful. You know that, I know that. My kids are going to be sinful. You know that, I know that. I need to have love, grace, and mercy when it comes to disciplining them and raising them. Skip ahead to verse 23. Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of your inheritance, for you serve the Lord Christ. Why do I love Dawn? I love Dawn because God told me to. Now, that does not sound very romantic. But if my love towards Dawn was based on her earning it or deserving it, then it's not unconditional love. That means that on a bad day, she could lose my love. If her love towards me was based on me earning it or deserving it, there's days I don't. My love towards my wife is based on the Lord said, James, I want you to serve me and serve me in this capacity. Love Dawn as Christ loved the church. Love her. Love her on the day she hasn't earned it. Love her on the day she hasn't deserved it. And I'm going to tell her to love you on the days you haven't earned it, on the days you haven't deserved it. Sometimes, wives, your husbands are not worthy of respect. But God still says respect them. Sometimes, husbands, your wives may not be worthy of love. But God still says love them. Because you're doing this for the Lord. You're doing this for the Lord. Look at verse 24 one more time. Verse 23. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. This may be the most unromantic message on marriage, and that's fine. Because when you get back down to the biblical basis of what marriage is supposed to be, all of a sudden there's a freedom in realizing, I don't have to earn her love. I don't have to keep her love. We made a vow of commitment to one another sealed by God, and I can walk in the trust of that, and the fear can be gone. And what a beautiful picture that is. Worship team, if you come forward.